Hey guys, quick pause to let you know that this episode is brought to you by Kane Crossing. As almost any experienced buyer can attest to, the quality of earnings report is one of the most important sources of information for prospective purchasers. And as a result, the firm that you select to perform it is one of the most important decisions that you will make in your capacity as a prospective purchaser. That's why I'm excited to partner with Kane Crossing. I've actually read through, analyzed, and relied upon several of their actual Q of E reports in my capacity as an investor. And from that firsthand experience, I can personally attest to the quality of work that they do. Unlike any other Q of E provider that I'm aware of, Kane Crossing often co-invests alongside their buyers in the acquisition, which aligns their interests with yours in a way that I simply haven't seen anywhere else. Over the past 12 months alone, they have completed 61 Q of E projects with a combined transaction value of over a billion dollars, though their median transaction value is around $10 million in enterprise value, putting them comfortably in the range of most small business buyers. The team brings big four experience, after all, the co-founders met while working at KPMG, but importantly, they're able to offer these capabilities at a much lower price than a big four provider ever could. And if you'd like, you can feel free to shoot me a note, and I'll happily put you in touch with some of their previous clients, who I suspect will do all of their marketing for them. Cane Crossing is offering a special discount to listeners of In the Trenches. Just go to canecrossing.com, Kane is spelled C-A-Y-N-E, and scroll down to the contact form on their homepage. Enter the code TRENCHES, and you will get a full $2,000 off of your Q of E engagement with them. Again, that is canecrossing.com. In a previous episode, entitled Lessons in Managing My Own Psychology, I presented the five most meaningful lessons that I had learned during my tenure as a CEO related to better managing my own emotions. In today's post, I get much more tactical and much more granular and discuss the specific tools and routines and practices that I have found to be particularly effective in doing the same. I'm taking the time to speak about this based on the following three deeply held beliefs, all of which are based on my own experience as an entrepreneur and CEO. First, a CEO's ability to manage herself is at least as important as, if not more important than, her ability to manage her business. Indeed, the two are inextricably linked. However, most business literature doesn't seem to adequately recognize this reality. Number two, unless you are deliberate about managing your own psychology, you risk becoming a sort of victim to the circumstances that happen to present themselves in your life at any given time. And as the leader of a company, the circumstances that typically present themselves in your life at any given time are often challenging or uncertain or worry-producing. And finally, number three, over time, the mood of the broader employee base often directly reflects that of the leader. When I was sluggish or tired or worried, almost inevitably the broader employee base came to experience those same things. When I was excited, energetic, or optimistic, most others tended to feel the same way. This didn't necessarily oscillate on a daily or weekly basis, but tended to be true in periods of time measured in months or quarters. As I will articulate in the episode that follows, as a leader, investments in yourself become investments in others. Organizational health suffers unless the CEO has properly attended to her own personal health, both mentally and physically.
But first, some caveats. The list of routines and practices that I'm about to articulate is not meant to capture every conceivable tool that one might choose to use in managing their own psychology. Instead, I've simply presented a list of tools that have worked for me in hopes that at least some of them might work for you too. Second, note that the effectiveness of many of these practices has been thoroughly documented in countless studies. As a result, I will spend little to no time explaining why and how they work at an intellectual or academic level. And finally, each tool that I'm about to present is so multifaceted that it has filled the pages of countless books all on its own. So for the sake of practicality, I'm forced to limit my comments to only a paragraph or two for each topic, but know that there is much more depth to be explored for the curious reader. Practice number one, meditation. This may be surprising to some of you, but the number of world-class performers, regardless of their discipline, that are not yet regular meditators is already a very small number and is indeed shrinking by the day. Contrary to popular belief, the goal of meditation is not to get rid of the thoughts that constantly occupy our racing minds, as any meditator will tell you that is completely impossible but is instead to be consciously and deliberately aware of those thoughts and to view them as a sort of interested third-party observer as opposed to personally identifying them, which we all tend to do from time to time. Though it takes time for meditation to yield its true benefits, in fact, impatience in realizing these benefits is one of the primary reasons why people give up meditation in the first place, my experience meditating over the past four or five years has provided me with the following benefits. First, better knowledge of myself and the unique tendencies of my mind. It really is amazing to simply sit and watch your mind operate even for 10 to 15 minutes a day because once you do this frequently enough, you become more aware of and more comfortable with its constant and seemingly random machinations. This awareness and familiarity helps me when unpleasant thoughts arise during the course of my day-to-day life as I'm now able to better attribute them to the mind simply being the mind that is a crazy manic roommate living between our ears that is constantly throwing out thoughts to us in hopes that we'll latch onto one of them. Other benefits include an increased ability to relax, more and better awareness of negative emotions like anger and frustration, and thus a better ability to manage them, an increased ability to actually be present when spending time with friends and family, as opposed to just being physically present with my thoughts residing elsewhere, And finally, a shrinking tendency to get caught up in unpleasant thoughts or to believe unpleasant stories that reside solely within my own head that have no actual link to reality. As a sidebar, it's worth asking, have you ever had an argument with somebody you know exclusively within your own head? Yeah, me too. If you aren't yet a regular meditator or you are skeptical of its benefits or you're just looking for an introductory overview there is a great 60-minute segment from 2016 on mindfulness meditation you can find a link to it in the written version of this blog post note that mindfulness is just one of many forms of meditation though it happens to be the one that i personally practice i've also found the following few resources to be helpful First, there's a book, again, the link you can find in the written form of this blog. It's called The Headspace Guide to Meditation and Mindfulness, which leads into tool number two, which is the Headspace app. It is great for an introduction to meditation, guided meditations, and helpful overviews of various techniques and tools. Now, in case it isn't clear, I am partial to Headspace, but many similar apps exist, boasting similar tools and functionality. 
Calm and Waking Up are two such apps that come to mind. Practice number two, journaling. I'll leave it to the academics and psychologists to explain why, but I've come to appreciate the amazing power of simply putting my thoughts on paper, even if I never do anything in particular with those thoughts. There's no right or wrong way to journal. You can write about anything for any length of time and for any reason. But in my experience, I've found journaling to yield the following major benefits. First, writing tends to add a layer of clarity to my thinking that would otherwise be very difficult to access if the thoughts resided solely within my own head. If you've ever used a whiteboard or a blank sheet of paper to help you think through a thorny problem or opportunity, then you've leveraged this same benefit, whether you are consciously aware of it or not. The act of journaling has surfaced more than a few big realizations for me that I almost certainly would not have uncovered had I not taken the time to put my thoughts on paper. Second, my experience in therapy has taught me that there is incredible power in the simple act of surfacing and explicitly talking about my problems, thoughts, and emotions. For me, journaling does a very similar thing, except the dialogue takes place in the written form as opposed to the spoken form, which is the case in therapy. In this way, journaling can be thought of as a form of therapy without a therapist. And finally, the act of explicitly surfacing questions, even if those questions don't yet have answers, allows the unconscious mind, the power of which dwarfs that of the conscious mind, to work on finding answers to those questions, even when you're not aware of that process occurring. I find journaling to be particularly helpful when I find myself in times of challenge or worry or uncertainty, though its usefulness is certainly not limited to such periods. The next time you find yourself ruminating or worrying or overthinking something, try the following. Rate how you feel on a scale of 1 to 10. Then try journaling for 15 minutes or so, and then rate how you feel on a scale of 1 to 10 after the exercise is completed. If you're anything like me, you'll feel better afterwards, even if you didn't come to any particular answers or realizations. Practice number three, sleep and exercise. Now I'm grouping these two together as so much has already been said about the importance of each of them, and you're likely already aware of their foundational benefits. At least I hope you are. Because so much literature already exists about the effectiveness of both sleep and exercise, I will limit my comments to the following. First on sleep, if you adopt only a single practice from this entire blog post, I would encourage you to rearrange your life. And yes, that means if drastic measures are required, you should take them to ensure that you are getting at least eight hours of sleep each night. If you don't, then few of the tools and practices contained within this post are likely to work for you, or at least not to their full extent. Skeptics are encouraged to read Matthew Walker's book, Why We Sleep, to learn more about the foundational benefits of getting adequate sleep. Next, on exercise, a simple Google search will likely overwhelm you with peer-reviewed research about the proven psychological benefits of exercise. This is to say nothing of its physical benefits. Several studies have shown that regular, vigorous exercise is at least as effective as, if not more effective than, most doctor-prescribed antidepressants. Not only does exercise provide us with a small accomplishment each day, which is psychologically important for type A overachievers like me and possibly you, but it also provides us with a set of goals to pursue outside of work, which is more important than you might realize. Countless studies on happiness have pointed to growth, progress, and learning as foundational components to achieving enduring levels of happiness. 
In my experience, it's beneficial to pursue growth and progress and learning in more than just one domain. So don't pursue it simply in the context of your work. Try to pursue it personally or professionally or physically or what have you. Now, this is important because inevitably there are going to be periods in your professional life where you won't experience growth or progress or learning. In fact, sometimes it might feel like you're experiencing the complete opposite. So it's helpful to have pursuits in other contexts that provide you with these important psychological benefits. Practice number four, doing nice things for other people and expecting nothing in return. One of the apparent paradoxes within the study of enduring human happiness is the following. One of the best ways to increase your own happiness is to focus on increasing the happiness of other people. I don't say this to suggest that being altruistic is something that you should do for self-serving purposes. Instead, I'm saying that an increase in your own happiness is a sort of pleasant, if unintended, consequence of focusing your efforts on helping others. A genuine win-win in every sense of that phrase. Helping others can take any form, but in my personal opinion, would ideally combine the following two things. A, it would leverage the things that you're already personally interested in doing, and B, it would leverage what you are uniquely suited to help other people with. So for example, if you already enjoy cooking, perhaps volunteer at a community kitchen that cooks and distributes meals for the less fortunate. If you're passionate about helping others with their mental health, perhaps volunteer as a hotline operator. If you love baseball, perhaps volunteer as a coach for a youth baseball team. In my case, one of the primary reasons for starting this blog and podcast in the first place was a genuine desire to help other entrepreneurs and CEOs in a way that I wish I was helped when I was in their position. I only write about the things in which I am personally interested in exploring, which is criterion A, the things that you're already interested in doing. And I decided that I was actually uniquely able to help this small set of the broader population, being entrepreneurs and CEOs, due to my many years of experience sitting in both of these seats, which is criterion B, leverage what you are uniquely suited to help people with. The discussions that I've had, the counsel that I've given, and the connections that I've made since starting this blog and podcast have provided me with a genuine sense of satisfaction that I've yet to replicate elsewhere. Practice number five, gratitude. Tony Robbins has said that one cannot be angry and grateful simultaneously. Though I'm sure many readers think of themselves as being inherently grateful for their circumstances, similar to journaling, there is great power in simply surfacing that gratitude and making it explicit, ideally on a daily basis if you can. This could take a very simple form, like writing down one thing that you're grateful for each morning or each evening, or it could take a more structured form, like that which is proposed within the 5-Minute Journal, which is a book that I used a number of years ago to add more structure and guidance to my own gratitude practice. Regardless of how you choose to do this, being regular and explicit with your gratitude helps to focus the mind on what you already have, and consequently decreases the amount of time that you spend thinking about the things that you wish were somehow different. Practice number 6 therapy. In a previous blog post entitled The Entrepreneur and Mental Health Part 2, I discussed the benefits of therapy and specifically discussed why most people's view of the use of therapists is misguided at best and antiquated at worst. You don't need to have a problem to see a therapist. You don't need to be battling any issue in particular, nor do you have to be, quote, unhappy. I've always thought of my therapist as my personal trainer for my mind. 
If I pay trainers at the gym to help my body be at its best, why wouldn't I hire a personal trainer to help my mind be at its best? If you are an entrepreneur or CEO and you aren't yet seeing a therapist, I'd suggest that you're leaving a large opportunity on the table. Practice number seven, reading about and attempting to practice stoicism. Though my wife playfully and regularly pokes fun at me for reading philosophy books at night, I couldn't write this post without mentioning the benefits that have accrued to me as a result of my study of stoic philosophy. Make no mistake, when I say study, I don't exactly sit by candlelight and study ancient scrolls long into the night. Instead, my study has been characterized by reading a small collection of books and then attempting to put into practice what I've read. Unfortunately, when the word stoic comes to mind, most people tend to think of a person who is seemingly devoid of any emotions and seems almost robotic at times. Interestingly, this description couldn't be further from the actual philosophy from which the word stoic derives its name. It's difficult to encapsulate an entire philosophy of life in a few sound bites, but I guess at the risk of attempting to do so, stoic philosophy has largely revolved around the following key pillars for me. Number one, there are things within our control and things outside of our control. Focus your attention on the former and ignore the latter. Next, it is not external circumstances that dictate our happiness, which are outside of our control, but is instead our reaction to those external circumstances. Those are within our control. Next, deeply appreciate what you already have and ignore what you do not yet have. When you visualize and contemplate losing the things that you already have, you'll develop a greater appreciation for them. Next, when you contemplate your own mortality, crazy as that may sound, you realize that your time is a gift and you tend to use it more wisely. Next, time spent thinking about the past and the future is time wasted. It is only time spent in the present moment that matters. Next, in the context of human history, everything that is currently happening to you has happened a thousand times before and will happen a thousand times again. And finally, things external to us, things like possessions and vacations and other people's perception of us don't actually matter. The feelings that we seek to attain in our pursuit of these externalities can actually be achieved within. If any of these ideas resonate with you, you might be interested in checking out the following resources, which again I link to in the written version of this blog. First, though Stoicism is a philosophy that is thousands of years old, Ryan Holiday deserves much of the credit in reintroducing this philosophy into the modern day. His blog, his email distribution list, and of course his books should be considered required reading in your study of what I'll call Stoicism 101. This is probably where I would start if I were you. There's another book. It's called A Guide to the Good Life, The Ancient Art of Stoic Joy, written by an author named William B. Irvine. This is a logical second step after reading some of Ryan Holiday's materials. It's another good introductory resource written in a very accessible way and applying modern-day interpretations to the ancient texts on which Stoic philosophy is based. And if you are looking for any more introductory resources, check out the books page on our website under the sub-headline Managing Yourself. Practice number eight, maintaining strong personal relationships. In a now famous Harvard study on happiness spanning over 80 years, it was found that our relationships, and specifically how happy we are within our relationships, have a powerful influence on our physical health, but are also one of the best predictors of our overall level of happiness. 
I mention this because as an entrepreneur or CEO, you're likely maniacally focused on your professional pursuits. And if you're anything like I was, some of your personal relationships with friends and family might have already suffered as a result. While it is understandable if this happens in short-term spurts, in the long run, allowing your relationships to deteriorate is likely to negatively impact both your physical and mental health. And as a result, will almost certainly negatively impact those professional pursuits on which you are so maniacally focused. To combat this, it's important to continue to foster and strengthen those relationships that are important to you, and simple practices can help you do this. It could be as simple as a regular date night scheduled with your spouse according to some agreed upon cadence, or maybe a goal to spend time with a friend or a family member at least once every two to four weeks. It's especially important to spend time with people who don't particularly care about your standing as an entrepreneur or CEO. It's not that they aren't interested, it's just that they'd like you just the same if you were an artist, an athlete, or an insurance broker. In sum, as a leader, investments in yourself become investments in others. Organizational health suffers unless the CEO has properly attended to her own personal health, both mentally and physically. I wish I was better at these things when I was a CEO. To tell you the truth, I was actually pretty lousy in putting any of these tools into practice and indeed might be a case study on the detrimental effects of not being more deliberate about managing one's own psychology when in a position of leadership. I'm writing this now in hopes that you'll pursue a more sustainable path than I did. Even today, I really hope you don't get the impression that I have it all figured out because trust me, I do not. I have an infinite amount of room for improvement on all of these items. I don't meditate daily. I probably should. I wish I journaled more often. I very regularly fail to express my own gratitude. I've skipped many therapy sessions, and there are more than a few relationships in my life that are not nearly as strong as I want them to be. But for whatever it's worth, as I've come to learn, it's not about being perfect. That is an impossible standard against which to hold ourselves. It's just about being a little bit better, or maybe a little bit more deliberate, or maybe a little bit more regular than we were previously. Over time, through taking small incremental steps, I hope that the accumulated impact of this better psychological hygiene routine will have notable impacts on both your personal and professional life. <music>